I was first introduced to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu training by a Navy SEAL, my friend and brother Steve Watkins. Uh, Steve was a believer. He was a very gracious and humble man. Uh, when he got on the mat, the steel would go over his eyes and the Navy SEAL would come out. Uh, he did write a book. Uh, the title of the book was Meeting God Behind Enemy Lines, My Christian Testimony as a U.S. Navy SEAL. Again, he was a very gracious and humble man. And I say that because I remembered in my personal interaction with him, and then even as he wrote in the book, when Steve would refer to uh, men that didn't make it through the BUDS, the six-month BUDS training, and especially the uh, week-long so-called hell week of Navy SEAL training, uh, when people didn't make it through, they didn't fail, they had to quit. They would ring a bell indicating that they're quitting. And what I found interesting and striking was when Steve would refer to these men, this gracious man called them quitters. And I remember initially thinking that, you know, that kind of seems kind of harsh, but that is what they are or what they were when that happened. Or in the last Olympics, uh, one of the most storied and highly anticipated U.S. athletes right in the middle of the Olympics just decided to quit. And not only did she uh, disappoint the country that she was representing, but she failed her teammates. And in a strange, very bizarre kind of woke mentality of the mainstream gatekeepers, media, and others, they actually celebrated her, celebrated her quitting, and even lifted her up as an example. I remember Jaden at the time asked me what I thought of the situation, and I think my initial response was on the lines of, well, we want to be gracious and sensitive to the pressures of being on the world stage would be on a 16-year-old young woman, and at the same time, it's beyond ludicrous to lift up somebody that quits in a situation like that as a positive example. Uh, you can have results or you can have excuses. You can't have both. And the reality is we don't celebrate quitters. We remember those who stay the course. We celebrate those who finish the race. Putting it in the context of the magnificent epistle to the Hebrews, we celebrate those who keep the faith. We remember and celebrate and lift up an example those who don't drift, those who don't neglect so great a salvation, those men and women who don't shrink back to destruction. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 in this so-called great hall of faith chapter. That is precisely what we are doing. We are looking to great examples of those who held the course until the end. Those who ran all the way through the tape. Our passage this morning are verses 17 through 19, beloved. Listen as I read the word of God that we have for us here this morning. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac... And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. And he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. This is the word of God read in your hearing, beloved. Please attend to it as such. Now, in this Author, in the author of Hebrews' exposition of the great narrative that we will be going to in Genesis chapter 22. What we see in the author's exposition of Genesis 22 are two great movements of faith, namely 
test God gives, the test God gives, and the trust Abraham has. And the intent from the original author to the original audience, and God's intent for you and for me even today, is that we would run the race well, that we would finish the course, that we would keep the faith. So let's first look at this first great movement of faith, namely the test that God gives. And beloved, on this test, the scales rest. And namely, it is this. Praise sometimes demands a sacrifice. Again, look at the beginning of verse 17. By faith, that key, that two-word English phrase, one word in the original Greek language, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch, by faith Noah, by faith Abraham, and then Sarah, and now back to Abraham. In Hebrews chapter 11, Abraham receives the greatest attention, or at least the most text. And what the author is doing here is he is bringing to mind the soul-chilling challenge of Genesis 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. Again, there are times when praise demands a sacrifice. There is a cost to pay. And we can think of David, when David told Arnah in 2 Samuel 24, David said, I will not offer a burnt offering to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. And in Genesis 22, beloved, this is the ultimate test for Father Abraham. This brings Genesis 22, this command from God to offer up his only son, brings Abraham to the summit of his lifelong walk with God. Turn back to Genesis 22. You can keep your thumb there. You can put a bookmark. Beginning in verse 1, I'll read through verse 14 to remind us of this great narrative, of this soul-chilling challenge that God laid on Abraham. Genesis 22 and verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told them. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. And Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But... The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. 
And he said, here I am. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide, Yahweh Yireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. Beloved, this is the word of God. Now, in Hebrews 11, verse 17, that is what the author is citing. He says, when God tested Abraham. In verse 1, it came about in these things that God tested Abraham. And both the Hebrew word and the Greek word, the Hebrew word in Genesis, the Greek word in Hebrews, the words, both words mean to exercise, to train, to prove the mettle of something. Very often by some kind of adversity, trial or tribulation. And it is, from a human standpoint, proving and showing and demonstrating what someone is really made of. You see, it's one thing to say you have faith. It's an entirely different matter to show you have faith, especially when it's under duress. In verse 3 here in Genesis 22, we read that Abraham rose early in the morning. So this is prompt obedience. This is prompt obedience, swift obedience obedience. Uh, Jesus said, Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. I believe in one of the songs that we sang, we sang and said to Jesus, you are my friend. He is our friend because he has made us his friends. And Jesus says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, the Lord is not saying you become my friends by doing what I command you. What he is saying is you show that you are my friends by doing what I command you. And this kind of swift obedience, prompt obedience that we see even from Abraham. Beloved, if you're going to obey God today, is the day. Today we know is the day of salvation. That is the charge, that is the cry to one outside of Christ. Today is the day of obedience for those that are in Christ. Now I've heard some people say Abraham rose early in the morning because he was just so filled with faith. He was just so excited to be a follower of God that he rose up early in the morning because he wanted to get about doing the business that God had commanded him to be sure there was swift obedience here but I don't think that's the primary reason I don't think Abraham slept one wink one iota that entire night in verse 3 he continues Moses does 20 Genesis 22 3 and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. By this time, Abraham was a very well-to-do. He was a rich man. He had two servants that went on the three-day journey with Abraham and Isaac. He had many other servants as well. Why did old man Abraham split the wood? Again, I think he split the wood. I think he split the wood himself with tears streaming down his face. I think he split the wood because of the massive burden, the very same reason, part of the reason he rose early in the morning was the massive burden that was on his shoulders. I think also there's an element of loyalty and love for his son Isaac, whom he loves. 
understanding that God has commanded that Isaac's life was to be taken and that his earthly remains were to be burned up as a burnt offering. If anyone is going to split and cut the wood that's going to consume my son's body, let it be me. Verse 4, on the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance, a three-day journey, around 50 miles. And you will notice that Scripture is silent during the journey as Abraham marches to the place of Isaac's execution, waiting on God as he walks, surely thinking, wrestling, agonizing over the command that God has given him, wrestling and grappling with how do I reconcile this command that I've received from God and what I know about the nature of God and the law of God, the rule of God, the sanctity of life and the promise that God has given regarding my son Isaac. Now, when we think of Genesis 22, Genesis 22, the narrative is directly referenced as we see here, as we have this morning here in Hebrews 11. It's also directly referenced in James chapter 2. James, who had the great concern, the half-brother of Jesus, had the great concern in James chapter 2 to help come alongside people that were making a profession of faith, but perhaps didn't have a true possession of faith. James had a great heart as superintended by God, as inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words to help all of us understand that, yes, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith alone that saves us is not alone. It produces something. James 2, verse 20 and 21, James writes, Are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? And even the grammar behind the word justified there, what James is saying is that Abraham's faith was vindicated by Abraham's works. Abraham's works proved Abraham's faith. He's drawing out the distinction between a dead faith, a mere had intellectual knowledge without a true trust from the heart. The difference between a dead faith and a living faith. The difference between a mere professed faith and a true possessed faith. The difference between Christianity claimed and Christianity confirmed. And again, we know that we are saved by faith alone apart from the works of the law. We are not saved by faith plus works, but we are saved by a faith that works. That's why James continues in verse 22. You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. So James, like the author of Hebrews, appeals back to Genesis 15, 6, where Abraham believed God. Abraham had faith in God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So James brings out that we are saved by faith alone, but again, he says it's a kind of faith that is demonstrated by the works. Now, beloved, in Genesis 22, God touched Abraham where it hurts. 
He put his finger on a live nerve. That was for him and that was for us. All of us, we aren't commanded. We don't receive direct revelation from God. Certainly anything along the lines of this. But God does touch us in our journey of life. We are all enrolled in the school of faith. And God touches us where it hurts. God puts his finger on a live wire. There is a cost involved in the movement of faith. There is a price to pay very often of what is nearest and dearest to us. That's why in the rest of verse 17, back in Hebrews 11, we read, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now, what is the author talking about there, the only begotten son? Because we know that Abraham had a son prior to Isaac. He had a son named Ishmael. But this is also echoing what we read Moses record in Genesis 22, verse 2, the direct words from God to Abraham when he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. There's a fourfold repetition. Your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. There's an increasing intensity here. There's an increasing intimacy here. And God is using that language when he gave this great command to Abraham to highlight the great cost of the price, the great difficulty of the sacrifice, and the great severity of the test. And it's in a sense like driving a knife, metaphorically speaking, into the heart of Abraham. Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and offer him up to me. The great hymn, When Praise Demands a Sacrifice, has these choice words. The call to go to Mount Moriah came to Abraham, but the offering placed before the Lord was not a lamb. He bound his only son, and when the knife was raised, a sacrifice became the price of praise. And to compound it even more, we need to understand the severity of this burnt offering the rest of verse 2 and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you the burnt offering there were many different offerings of the people of God the burnt offering was the only offering that was completely burned and totally consumed on the altar it was a symbol of total devotion to the Lord The animal would be killed, its blood would be drained, and then they would burn the carcass until there's nothing left but dust and ashes. To give you an idea, in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek word that they use to translate burnt offering is holocarposis. We get an English word from that, the English word holocaust. Beloved, that is the significance, that is the severity, that is the magnitude of the command, the demand that God places upon Abraham. J.C. Ryle, in his excellent book, Holiness, said this, quote, he said, I grant freely it costs little to be a mere outward Christian, but it does cost something to be a real Christian according to the standard of the Bible. There are enemies to be overcome, Battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to be passed through, a cross to be carried, a race to be run. Ryle finishes, conversions not putting a man in an armchair and taking him easily to heaven. 
It's the beginning of a mighty conflict in which it costs much to win the victory. Beloved, Jesus said, my yoke is easy. Salvation is a gift, but the journey, the walk, may cost everything. And beloved, if commanded by God, if you were commanded by God to tie up your son, to slit his throat, I can't look over here, to uh, slit his throat, to let the blood drain out from his body and then burn up his remains, could you do that? That is the severity. That is the test. Beloved, a clay pot left sitting in the sun remains a clay pot. It has to go through the white heat of the furnace to turn it into porcelain. That is part of God's good plan in the severe trials and tribulations and challenges in your life, in my life. There needs to be a time when you suffer something to worship. Praise demands a sacrifice. There is Again, a price to pay, and very often it may be what is nearest and dearest to you. When praise demands a sacrifice, the hymn finishes. When praise demands a sacrifice, I'll worship even then. Surrendering the dearest things in life. And if devotion costs me all, he'll find me faithful to his call. When praise demands a sacrifice. Beloved, Are you willing to sacrifice on the altar that which is most precious to you? Blessed are they. Blessed are you who, like Abraham, prove their love, prove your love to God by surrendering all. That's the application from God of this great narrative of Abraham and his offering up Isaac. That is the first movement of faith, the test God gives, which is now followed by the trust Abraham has how did abraham how do we reconcile this command from god with the promise of god to sacrifice that which is most precious to him to sacrifice to us applying it of what is most precious to us i mean abraham did his business and mark this he trusted god to do his business mark this abraham obeyed the command because he believed the promise. Abraham obeyed God's charge because he believed the word of God. Verse 18, the promise, the author reminds us, it was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. That's the promise of God. That's a direct quote from Genesis 21, verse 12. In fact, if you're in Genesis or go back to Genesis, let me read verses 19 through 20 of Genesis 21 because we want to have a good understanding in one sense of this business of Ishmael and Isaac and the specific promise God has given Genesis 21 beginning in verse 9 now Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian that's Ishmael whom she had born to Abraham mocking therefore she said to Abraham drive out this maid and her son For the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. And the matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son, because of his son Ishmael. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah Sarah tells you, listen to her. For through Isaac your descendants shall be named. And of the son of the maid I will make a nation also because he is your descendant. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder, and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up, and she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went out and sat down opposite him about a bowshot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. Beloved, I strongly believe the testimony of Scripture is Ishmael, the man, the individual, was saved. God had told Abraham and Sarah that he would bless Ishmael. God heard Ishmael crying in the wilderness, and the language said God was with Ishmael. To be sure, his descendants became the, one of the perennial enemies of God's chosen nation of Israel. But God, I believe, saved Ishmael. And the point that is being brought out by God's promise to Abraham about Isaac is God is protecting his promise by telling Abraham to listen to his wife, Sarah. If, pause for a moment, back in Genesis 16, when Sarah had the bright idea of giving her Egyptian maidservant Hagar to Abraham that they could produce a son because she was getting on her age, Abraham, in that case, should not have listened to Sarah. But now, not only is God telling Abraham that he should listen to Sarah, he is commanding Abraham to listen to Sarah, to protect the line of promise. And the answer to the problem here is separation. Now, we know from a normal standpoint in church and Christian life that it's better for us to sacrifice our Christian liberties, that sacrifice is normally better than separation, but separation, reconciliation is preferred, but at times separation is necessary in a very unique way here to protect the line of promise. And understand this, God's commandment of separation is not an abandonment of Ishmael. It is, first and foremost, a protection of Isaac. And even as we read from Genesis 21, God's hand is with Ishmael. And by the way, Abraham will do the same again later on after Sarah has gone home to be with the Lord and passed away. In Genesis 25, 6, we read, To the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So the point here is God is preserving his chosen line of promise to Isaac. That's what the author of Hebrews is citing in verse 18. So there is praise and sacrifice. There is promise. And now as we move to verse 19, there is promise and salvation. Look at verse 19. For he, Abraham, considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. This is the author of Hebrews, divinely inspired, superintended by the Holy Spirit, commentary on part of what was going on in the heart and mind of Abraham. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Now, this is a further development and a little more clarity to something that we picked up even back in Genesis 22. 
In verse 5, Abraham said to his young men, after the three-day journey when they're at the foot of the mountain, Abraham told his two young men servants, stay here with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder, and we will worship, and we will return to you. We will return to you. Abraham has faith, and Abraham understands at some level God's ability to raise the dead. He understands at some level resurrection. That's why we understand, especially with the illumination of Hebrews eleven nineteen, that he made that statement, we will return to you. Now, practically speaking, we might be tempted to say, since Abraham had faith, since Abraham had some rudimentary understanding of resurrection, maybe it was a little easy for him to do this thing. Not so. Beloved, for Abraham, for you and for me, as we face a severe test of our life, it's one thing to understand the sacrifice intellectually and spiritually. It's an entirely different matter to grapple with the sacrifice emotionally. To be sure, intellectually and spiritually, is the most important. The intellect and the revelation of the Spirit drives our feelings and governs our emotions, but we have to live in here and now. We move and breathe in this present misery. And what Abraham did was he hammered out his emotions and his feelings on the anvil of his theology. That's what we always have to do. When God asks you, commands you, providentially, perhaps, well, maybe providentially, always, to sacrifice and to release what is nearest and dearest to you, you and I must hammer out our emotions and our feelings on the anvil of the theology God reveals to us in the pages of Scripture. Abraham has faith. He understands God's ability to raise men from the dead, but don't think for a moment that that somehow makes this thing easy for him. And in the context of Hebrews, there's the promise in the old and the fulfillment in the new. There's a promise that we read in the Old Testament, the promise of the old covenant. And there's the fulfillment in the New Testament, fulfillment in the new covenant, fulfillment in Christ. And we can't fully understand and appreciate the fulfillment if we don't rightly understand the promise. That's why he considered God is able, verse 19, able to raise men even from the dead, finally, from which he also received him back as a type. A type, en parabole, literally in a parable. The placing of one thing by the side of another. The English Standard Version translates that last phrase, figuratively speaking. This is a comparison, it's an analogy, a spiritual truth that is explained by a physical illustration. And what a powerful, powerful, unique physical illustration God gave Abraham, God gives all of us. Beloved, this is a signpost for Abraham and a signpost for you and for me, directing us to the all-sufficient provision that God intended from the very beginning. In Genesis 22, the promised son, the only son, ascends the mount of his sacrifice carrying the wood on his back. In 22, verses 7 and 8, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, My father, here I am, my son. Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt 
offering. There was a lamb. There will be a lamb. God will provide for himself, Abraham responds. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. That was before they got to the mountaintop. After they got to the mountaintop, after God intervened, the last verse I read when I read from Genesis 22 is verse 14. Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. Notice Abraham didn't call. This is after God had provided the ram that was caught by its horns in the thicket. Notice Abraham didn't call the place that God did provide. He called the place God will provide. Abraham, at some level, perhaps understood what we now understand in greater detail, that this is pointing to something far greater than the sacrifice of a ram. And one other gem to bring out, back in verse 8, before, as he was explaining to Isaac, before the altar, he said, God, Elohim, will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. After the fact, he named the place, the Lord will provide Yahweh, Yaira, God's covenant name, the greater revelation and experience that flowed to Abraham from his obedience, from this ascension of the summit of his lifelong walk with God. There will be an only son led to the place of sacrifice, carrying the wood of his own death. And God himself, Yahweh, Yaira, will provide a substitutionary lamb to pay the blood penalty, the just punishment for sin. That's why the Apostle Paul wrote to the Colossae church, Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And this is Paul speaking to the Colossian believers. This is God speaking to you and me. When you are dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt against us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Jesus Christ nailed your death certificate, my death certificate to the cross by virtue of his once for all sacrifice. Beloved, dear friend, faith is not a crutch for weak people. Faith is a challenge for strong people. James Boyce was lamenting the discipleship. He was lamenting the lack of discipleship. He was lamenting the state of the 20th century American church. This is what he wrote. He said this, quote, There's a fatal defect in the life of Christ's church in the 20th century. A lack of true discipleship. Discipleship means forsaking everything to follow Christ. But for many of today's supposed Christians, perhaps the majority, Dr. Boyce said, it's the case that while there is much talk about Christ and even much furious activity, there's actually very little following, genuine following of Christ himself. And that means, sadly, in some circles, there's very little genuine Christianity. Many who fervently call him Lord, Lord, are not Christians. They're Several reasons the situation are described as common in today's church. The first is a defective theology that's crept over us like a deadening fog, end quote. 
Beloved, that's why it's so important to spend time in the Word. Spend time in fellowship with the people of God in the Word of God. Expend yourself in the ministry of God for God's glory, for the blessing of your brothers and sisters, and for a witness to a lost and dying world. Every day, beloved, you will face, I will face, we will face tests that will either make us or break us. May we be a people who stay the course and finish the race. Like the Apostle Paul. When Paul's journey was coming to an end, when he was in prison awaiting certain execution, he wrote to young Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul said, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course I have kept the faith. In the future, Paul continues, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. Beloved, friend, do you love his appearing? He is coming. He will appear. He will appear either as your Savior or as your judge. Beloved, this is the great work that Christ has done on our behalf that was pictured by that incredible story of Abraham. Please, and this prepares us and sets the stage even now as we go to the communion table to remember the great price that he paid on our behalf. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, again, we are so humbled. We are so grateful, Lord, for the salvation we enjoy in Christ. Thank you for making us new creatures. Thank you for the joy and the hope and the certainty that we enjoy because, Lord God, our salvation is not based on our works. It's not based on what we do. It's certainly not based on what we deserve because, Lord, we know we deserve hell. We deserve judgment because of sin. But we praise you and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you paid that price. You died as a substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf so that, Lord God, Father, when you look at us, you look at me, you don't see our sinful, wicked life. You see the perfect, sinless life and the once-for-all sacrifice and offering that your Son provided. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and we now approach the communion table. Amen.